Okay, hey, Howard. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? I understand you're doing home repairs today, not people repairs. We had to repair dartboard damage to a wall today. <laughs> and not because the dartboard was connected too tightly to the wall. This is literally darts related to the dartboard. So, Absolutely. The dartboard stayed up. Ay, ay, ay. I was telling you before we came on that I've, years ago, a friend of mine was playing darts and uh, was, was as, <clears throat> I'll still say, debauched teenagers. And he was reaching out for a dart and another deranged teenage friend of mine at the time just hurled the dart in and just trying to be a goof. And I guess, I'm not sure he was planning to have it happen, but the dart went right through the other this other friend of mine's hand and pinned it to the dartboard, which was pretty exciting at three in the afternoon while skipping school. So. I'm never. I'm not quite sure when getting a teenager a dartboard appeared as a decent idea. Not. I just don't recall that moment. Yeah, it's maybe marginally better than lawn darts, but that's not much, <laughs> <laughs> not much of an improvement. <laughs> Anyways, we'll stay away from darts today at All Sharp Objects. We're talking about metabolic syndrome. We started this conversation and described what exactly it is. And this week, the plan was to finish up with talking about what we can do about it, because obviously that matters even more than what it is. But I thought maybe a good place to start is to talk, just a reminder, uh, 101 of exactly what metabolic syndrome is. And it's really just a basket of things, right, that together some 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 loose set of things indications that might suggest you have it it's like abdominal obesity and so on right right if you have uh, a beer belly a little a few extra pounds around your belly you're insulin resistant hypertensive your triglycerides are high and your hdls are a little low you meet the definition of having metabolic syndrome. Just as an aside, I meant to ask you this last week, and I was looking for some more stuff about it, but I didn't really find anything. I remember reading years ago, here goes Paul into some strange foray, <laughs> that it actually, when people say, well, I don't really have, people are prone to say when you talk about abdominal obesity as an indicator for metabolic syndrome and potentially being insulin resistant, which is obviously another one of the factors here, they say, well, I don't have that much of a belly. That It's actually not very much abdominal obesity required to potentially be a risk factor here. We're not talking about people with an extra 70 pounds necessarily around the waist, right? No, we're not. We drew a distinction between, I'll call it routine obesity, and this toxic obesity with abdominal fat. You don't need much fat around your organs to create a toxic environment and contribute the inflammatory mediators that they do to increase the risks associated with cardiac disease, dementia, stroke, etc. Yeah, and I think that's really key for, to, to understand because there's always this sense, well, yeah, I mean, I could have this, but look, I'm actually, yeah, I might have five pounds or 10 pounds or whatever of a carrying extra weight, but it's not that much. And the, the, right, the correct answer is, well, it, it depends. And even at relatively small levels, it depends. Where is it? Is it around the organs? Is this is this vis is this really visceral fat or or, or, is, or is it subcutaneous? And people are too quick, I think, sometimes to just pass it off and say, "Well, this doesn't apply to me." 
Sure. Well, it's fascinating. I'll be in the office and I'll ask someone if they have any medical problems. Uh, no, they don't. And they're wearing a button-down <laughs> shirt and I see a tiny little top of an incision where they had a median sternotomy and their chest was open. I'm like, what's that? Said, oh, I had an open heart surgery. <laughs> oh, you know. dear. You're so right. my vessels are fixed. And it says here you're on some medications. All right, I take them for blood pressure, but my blood pressure is normal on the medications. <laughs> so they're not connecting the dots, yeah, which yeah. is also one of the things we tried to do last time is to all these dots for people. Yeah, and that's and that's really the key because otherwise, and we'll talk about this a little bit about it and what you can do about it, but otherwise there's a tendency to treat each of these discrete pieces as discrete pieces. And that's a bad idea because having metabolic syndrome is is a is a risk factor for a host of different things. And just to summarize, because we talked about it last week, but like type 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 two diabetes, cardiovascular problems, arthrosclerosis, the list goes on and on, right? Strokes, dementia, arthritis, I mean, they do affect tendons, muscles, and joints as well. So it affects our entire body. Yeah, it affects our entire body, and it affects, and maybe this, just this before we go on, I mean, it affects a huge fraction of the population. I, something in excess of 60%, 70% of the population has at least a couple of the markers of metabolic syndrome. Well, uh, yeah, a tremendous n number of people meet the clinical diagnosis of for, for obesity. The precise number who meet the diagnosis uh, criteria for MedS, it's hard to not exactly sure. Yeah, but at least for the at least one of the major factors is a huge fraction of the population that meets it, which is at least concerning. So let's jump across and talk about what can be done about it. And at a really high level, you can. You can break. Well, let's first say one other thing before we get there, which is that, and I like your expression for this, but before we even think about what we're going to do about it, I think it's really important to say this is an AUC issue, as you like to say. It's an area under the curve problem. What we're going to do about it and how effective that thing will be to some degree depends on how long you've spent in that condition, right? That area under the curve thing. Right. If you think about atherosclerosis and lipids, the longer your arterial walls are exposed to elevated lipids and inflammation, the worse the atherosclerosis is going to be. This is a disease that progresses slowly, as are many of these diseases, and they really creep up on us. Um, yeah. So the earlier that we have one of these light bulb moments and realize that we have an issue and we connect the dots the better we are at minimizing the downside risks. Yeah, so again, another reason to be sensitized to this stuff and recognize that even though there are things I can do, if I've been if I've been deluding myself or at least unaware of this for a long time, as you're on it's it's probably there's things you can do to help mitigate the problem, but it's going to take longer than if it had never happened in the first place or if you were, yeah, I don't know, 17, God help you or something. There's not a lot. Well, there probably are a lot of 17-year-olds with metabolic syndrome. Oh, no, I know. So so let's maybe start off with the, the non-magic side of things, the hard work side of things, and the non-medicinal things you can do because we'll break it out. There's, there's some medicinal things, and we've alluded to some of them already, but let's start off with the non-medicinal stuff. And these are all going to sound really straightforward to people because we hear about it all the time and almost everything that you need to, you need to get more exercise, you need to eat better, and so on, right? These are the, these are the, it's the same answers. 
It really is. And as we talked about previously, I've had some success with people in obtaining one of those light bulb moments by trying to connect the dots. Uh Uh, When they're starting to see these pathways and you start to talk about what the road looks like in front of them, many people will buy and they'll understand. And I'll start gently with them. I'm like, look, pick up a dumbbell and do five curls every day. (laughs) Right. Park in the spot that's furthest away from the building and don't drive around to look for one closer. We can work on this. I was at a I was at a hiking trail yesterday. Yesterday, I think it was going out for a run, and I saw two people almost get into a fist fight. <laughs> so crazy, because before going out into this hiking trail and going, I don't know, a couple of miles or whatever distance they were going to go, they were fighting for a parking place nearest to the trailhead when there were lots <laughs> twenty yards away. And I just shake my head. People's in, even when people's instincts are right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for a hike and so on. Is it really is it really necessary that you then have some knockdown drag out fight to see who can park closest to the trailhead? It's just remarkable to me. But it's turn it around, lose that instinct, and it's a, it's yet one more small step you can make towards make forcing yourself to be more active one piece at a time, whether it's at the grocery store or. Any, or God help you at a trailhead or somewhere else. Right. 6,000 steps a day improves your all-cause mortality risk. It's not going to reverse metabolic syndrome in and of itself, but it's a phenomenal start. And you'd be amazed at how easily it comes. Yeah. And I was looking at some of the numbers earlier today, just as a reminder about how much exercise it takes to have a material reduction if you're, say, you're hypertensive. Leave, leave aside just a reduction in blood pressure, but a reduction in blood pressure as someone who's diagnosed hypertensive, it isn't very much. <laughs> Not very no. much, I mean, in terms of increased activity, if you, especially if you're starting from a sedentary base. Correct. If you get your heart rate up, as we discussed, into the zone two range, which is not hard. You won't be sweating. You won't be winded. You won't be short of breath and it won't hurt. You're going to realize the benefits of exercise. And it could be systolic, might be five or six points down. I mean, it's not, it's actually, it's material amounts for people, right? I mean, and it doesn't, and it starts at relatively low levels. This is a classic Within reason, it's a classic dose-response relationship to things like exercise and its impact on some of the markers of metabolic syndrome. Right. People might you know, laugh off a 5-millimeter mercury decrease, but it results in a very significant uh, reduction in all-cause mortality risk. Yeah, and, it, and I, I've argued, because I've seen this happen with people I know who are hypertensive and began be- uh, getting more active, it actually gives fee- people a feeling of control. Uh, and I think that's I think that's underrated as a factor here because if you feel like the only things that can fix this, well, either that you're imp- you're entirely impotent, you can't fix it, or it's drugs, that leads to a feeling of helplessness, this learned helplessness problem. And if you if people learn that by being even modestly active, I can have an impact, I think that's hugely empowering for people. At least it has been for people that I've seen. It's been even small reductions that they can trace directly to their own activity is are hugely important. No doubt. And you and I side differently on technology, but I've had some people buy an Omron 
blood yep. pressure cuff. Yep. Right. And I'm like, check it before you go out, go walk around the block <laughs> and check it when you get back. And you're going to notice a difference. No, no, for sure. And a sustained difference. It, it's not just it's going to be good for the next hour or whatever. So if you maintain this relationship with exercise, the impact in terms of the, the, those particular hypertensive markers are going to, are, are, will be sustained. And that's a feeling of empowerment, I think, for people. So, so exercise, it's often called this magic wonder drug, but it really is when, with respect to metabolic syndrome. It affects almost every marker that we've talked about visceral fat, hypertension, some of the blood markers potentially can be hugely swung by this. This is a this is a really big insulin sensitivity. I mean, that's yep. try we can trace that directly to exercise, right? Correct. So, these are all these are all big deals. So, exercise is one thing people can do and everyone everyone can start very modestly as you described. Another one that it's is super important is sleep obviously. And and I, I have a very fraught relationship with prescribing <laughs> sleep to people because the next thing when this is maybe a West Coast California thing, people start buying sleep trackers and stuff and then they get agonized start agonizing about the quality of their sleep and that makes their sleep worse. But I'll putting leaving that derangement aside for a second. <laughs> The relationship between sleep and some of the markers of metabolic syndrome are, is pretty clear. Absolutely. Sleep will improve your insulin resistance, improve your glycogen synthesis, in, it improves your immune health, it improves your blood pressure control. Sleep is an active process that your brain needs. And as I've sought to optimize my lifestyle for longevity... I've come to realize over the last five or 10 years that sleep is such a critical importance, is of such such critical importance. We need seven and a half to eight hours of sleep. You don't need less. I don't care what you say. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. But let me, uh, while we're on the topic of sleep, now, what's your what's your number one best sleep tip? I always like to ask people this. What's your best sleep tip? So I don't Dark, have not, one. Oh, so okay. I won't I, I won't eat within two hours of bedtime. Right? Okay. I want my blood sugar normal. If my blood sugar is high when I go to sleep, I know I'm gonna have a really bad night sleeping. I, I have to calm down, right? Uh -huh. So if it's a stupid show or a ch or a chill <laughs> or a chill book, I'm going to do that. I'm going to decrease the lights in parts of the home. I'm going to get my circadian rhythm set to get ready to go to bed. So there are a few things. Yeah. I I'm a big fan of it. I've been converted to this over time that it's more important that you when you get to bed than it is about when you wake up. So if it means that I'm sleeping, I mean to pick an extreme example from nine at night until five in the morning and getting my eight hours that way, that's that's what it is, right? But the alternative of trying to convince yourself that if I go to bed at one in the morning, I'll somehow consistently sleep till nine or ten, maybe as a teenager I did that, but it's not that easy now. I haven't slept till ten since since I was thirteen. Right? Exactly. Right. Right. Never. But that's but people are so resistant to the idea of. I, I'll talk to people and I says, "What time are you? What time are you going to bed these days?" Oh, I try to be in bed by nine. Really? No, you don't. 
If you'll be well, I'm getting ready by nine. And okay, what time are you actually in? Well, by the time I finish doing stuff, and you know, I'll get in bed with a book around uh, you know ten, ten fifteen. And I said, and when do you stop tweeting and stuff? Oh, oh well. And the next thing, it's actually it's eleven o'clock, right? I mean, it's eleven, eleven thirty before they're actually trying to drop off to sleep, and then they're up again at you know five thirty or whatever it is, six o'clock in the morning. And it's like, dude, that's not working, <laughs> right? Falling asleep is not a failure of something. Right. Right. You're not failing at life because you go to sleep early. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and if you're, for those who have bought into optimizing their life for longevity and they're exercising and they're eating right, if you're not optimizing your lifestyle for the proper amount of sleep, then, then you're missing a large contributor to your chronic disease risk. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's huge. It's huge. And I mean, it's, Without people suddenly stressing about sleeping because that becomes its own problem, I, I just I just think it's one of the more remarkable up there with exercise wonder drugs. Let's uh, jump over to diet here. I don't think there should be any surprises for people, but it's worth pointing out that the sugars, fats, alcohol, all these things, fructose. Where do, where do we start? <laughs> these are all bad. Yeah. So it. <laughs> This is the result of a caloric excess, and then you bring in the insulin resistance, so your muscles can't store the glycogen. You still have you still have glucose that's that's floating around your blood. It hits the liver. The liver has to store it. It fills up its glycogen stores where it stores glucose. Now it turns it to fat. It processes that into triglycerides. It throws the triglycerides out into your bloodstream. That's why your triglycerides are high. And it just builds on itself. And then that fat will start to deposit. So we need to decrease our caloric burden. And we'll get into this later, but we understand that clearly there's a genetic etiology to obesity and diabetes in many. Right, mm -hmm. obesity yeah. and subsequent type two diabetes. I, mm -hmm. I need to clarify. So it's not as you know that this isn't a fat shaming thing. You know, this isn't a failure on your part. There, there are a lot of people out there who really don't eat a lot, and they can't lose weight, and yeah. they're stuck in this. And a lot of people on Twitter will scream, "Ah, oh, we didn't have any fat ancestors." Well, that was a different environment, right? That was a food scarcity environment. <laughs> yeah. So our epigenetics didn't allow for that phenotype to be expressed. But with 24-7 food availability, that phenotype is expressing itself now. Yeah. Yeah, we live in an but, obesogenic environment, as they say. We really do. And then you layer on the ultra-processed foods, and it makes the problem that much worse. So as... You and I have talked about we need to rely on more fruits or more vegetables, certainly. Some yeah. fruits, high fiber uh, diets uh, to pull out some fats, lean How protein. You, what's your view on, and this is getting down a nutritional rabbit hole, and so I'll, I'll confess that right away, but what's your <laughs> view about the... The glycemic index with respect to certain fruits and things. How much? How much should we care? I mean, we. I think you were sent me something earlier about was you had a banana or something, and and <laughs> you saw it saw it immediately in, in on your blood glucose reading. But I mean, nevertheless, what's your view about that in terms of the trade off between the glycemic load of fruits, or at least specific fruits, and their utility as a as a as a I won't say a superfood, but just as a part of your diet. 
So I do think that fruits have an important role, certain fruits, I'll say, in a good nutritional diet. What I worry about with certain fruits is not only, you know, the glucose, but the fructose. Yeah. Right? Evolutionarily speaking, we don't have a need for fructose, and our body just tries to dispose of it. And if you look at the metabolism, fructose ends in the production of uric acid and fatty acids. It doesn't, unlike, unlike glucose, which ends in hopefully just glycogen, but in some, it ends in glycogen and fat. So that's why some will use uric acid as a biomarker for your potential fat burden in your liver and NAFLD. And so I do think that fruit does contribute somewhat to that. So I try to stick with blueberries and strawberries and less less glycemic fruits. Yeah, yeah, well, that's certainly my bias. And again, I came at this from a position of... I won't even say relative of absolute ignorance of a decade or more ago where I just – fruits are fruits of fruit, right? <laughs> so right. this whole idea of the the, the differential loads was uh, – I was I had no idea. And so it's been, a, it's been a learning exercise. But it's interesting to hear you say that. So one thing as we're talking about glycemic loads and so on, and we talked about this a little bit last time. But I got a question about it from someone who sent me an email after it and without, at risk of turning this to a, an ask me anything – What's your view on the on oral glucose tolerance tests versus fasting blood glucose tests? Oh, I'm, there's no question. I mean, the OGTT with measuring insulin levels will pick up an insulin resistant individual far sooner. I mean, so perhaps a decade sooner than yeah. a fasting blood glucose level. So that was what I, that was my view, and that's what I I said back to them. I said I would talk to you, but I I so why do we insist on doing fasting blood glucose tests over oral t- over the oral glucose tolerance test? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, <laughs> I'm an orthopedic surgeon for God's sakes. Yeah, I know, and I'm an <laughs> idiot. But I mean, I I I have no idea. I was I had no answer. That was the question he was asking. He was saying I, my impression was this is so much more sensitive and useful. And there's so much noise in fasting blood glucose. Why do we not do – I mean, I literally – I think I told you this back in the fall. I had a – as part of some ridiculous insurance uh, – I'll say scam, but I mean that in the nicest way possible. They wanted me to do a fasting blood glucose for – you do all these tests and give them back the results and you get like 100 bucks from the insurance company. It's like, yeah, whatever. So you do these things and it's like – why are they making me do this? Because it's such a ridiculously noisy signal in the first place, leaving aside that I don't probably don't need to do it anyway, but I'll do it for cash because I'm greedy that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, but why aren't they making me? Anyways, I just, this is maybe a topic for another conversation, but it baffles me in medicine all the time when I find, when there's two or three different tests for this of the same condition or same marker. And for whatever ridiculous reason, we're doing one that makes no sense to me. Look, I... We've talked about this online and offline a lot. Many doctors don't know about uric acid, right? They think it's a dead end product, purine metabolism. They don't know about ApoB, LP little a. How many friends are getting CAC scores with cholesterol level of 200 to try and see whether they benefit from a statin or not? And look, I'm... 
I'm not a population health expert, and granted, all this may function well for me as an individual and for assessing it in myself and my friends and those I love, and maybe it doesn't scale well on a population health level, Yeah, but I do think that these are trends that are going to appear and are going to be traced and tracked and measured as we learn more, especially as we're going to discuss. We now have some medications that will clearly help people with insulin resistance, etc. So the more people that we can identify, the more that we can help. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true, but... Okay, I'll end my rant about tests. <laughs> I just have a bee in my bonnet about it. So diet is the usual answers, right? Like vegetables, fruits, high-fiber grains, more lean protein, less of all that other garbage. And that should come as no surprise to people. But again, it's a dose-response thing. It, people should be uh, would be amazed the difference that, that these, the effect that these things have at re- even relatively modest changes because – it's, it's, it, as they say, it, it's, it's like a medicine. It's a dose response thing. Well, people get scared, right? They think, oh, I have to cut out a thousand calories. Yeah. I have to lose <laughs> right. 10 pounds by yeah. Friday. Yeah. If they can cut the milk out of their coffee, if they can skip a donut, if they can skip an iced tea, just start to cut down on these little troublemakers as the weeks go on, those hundred calorie savings really add up. So let's quickly get a couple of other things that are more lifestyle related, then we'll jump over to medicine. Others, the obvious ones, smoking. I mean, I feel yeah. like it's crazy. This is 2021. Who do I need to say? Why am I even talking about smoking? I was by a traffic light yesterday, and every car around me had someone smoking inside. I was like checking my 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 phone to see if I had gone to 1951 by accident. With I'm, the windows closed and their kids in the back seat. You, it's like you were there. I just my jaw dropped, and I was, right. what crazy experiment are we running here? How is this possible in 2021? And yet here we are. Right. Right. So, anyways, enough said. Smoking out. And you make a good point that that loneliness is a factor here, and, I, and this is something that's obviously we've talked a little bit about in the context of the pandemic. But it's a long-standing and much broader problem that the, just the importance of being being with friends and walking it can give you give you an even incentive to walk and socialize. Right? These things feed back on each other, which feeds back into th- to some of the markers of metabolic syndrome. It really does. And people who've written about the Mediterranean diet and its influence on longevity have clearly spoken to the fact that it's the Mediterranean lifestyle, right? These people are always out. They're meeting with their neighbors. They have large family (laughs) and friends, dinners. It's It's a lifestyle. And being lonely and not having friends and not having people that you can speak up, pick up the phone and call or go out to dinner with and just to relax, de-stress and share what's bothering you with is, is really quite a burden t- to carry. Oh, and like binge watching WandaVision while eating chips is a bad idea. Let's just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a really, I said, this, this should be my whole prescription. Stop binge watching WandaVision with chips. My God. 
But anyways, get out and talk to people. So let's let's jump over to the medicinal side of things. We've alluded to this already, but it's not that there's some any specific medication that you that addresses all of the factors that are related to metabolic syndrome. But we do have some drugs that target specific aspects of it, right? Like statins, for example. Sure. So statins, well, are going to target your LDL. So they're going to help to minimize your risk of cardiac disease. And if you have metabolic syndrome and an elevated LDL, then you're at very high risk because now you have both the LDL and the inflammatory burden from the metabolic syndrome. So you have yeah. both things that are necessary and sufficient to cause heart disease. Yeah. Statins yeah. aren't going to address the, your fatty liver and other things, but there are uh, other medications that might. What, so in that spirit, I mean, what others do you, do you like? Do you like the wrong word? But do you think are at least have some utility in here? That Are there typically medications? Would you think of it typically through the lens of, of medications that are appropriate for type 2 diabetics that help you manage blood sugar? Is that the lens at, through which you'd look at it? Or how do, would you think about it? Right. I think that helping people manage insulin resistance and the burden that comes with that will go a yeah. long way to helping minimize the chronic disease burden of metabolic syndrome. So the SGL2Is and certainly the GLP-1 agonists really do seem to be making uh, a big difference in people's lives. This past week, the GLP-1 agonists were shown to decrease people's weight burden by, I think, it was 16 to 18%. At a year, which really, is just remarkable, re yeah, really remarkable. Yeah. And those are this is not a this is not a wonder drug that's come out of nowhere. This has been a steady process of getting better at helping people manage their insulin resistance with a series of products here. But they can have they can have real real relevance and importance for people with metabolic syndromes. Absolutely, and as we talked about, there is a genetic basis for obesity, and some of those obese patients will have metabolic syndrome. Some may not. They may benefit significantly from GLP-1 agonists going forward. Anything else? I mean, weight loss drugs or anything else that you think is interesting here or anything you've seen on the horizon or anything that you just heard people talk about? I think weight loss surgery needs to be considered in this mix, it, especially for people with really morbid obesity and they've tried everything else, when all else fails and they've managed to start exercising and change their diet and they are just up against a wall and they're fighting their genetics, surgery is a good option for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's and and obesity is such a such a hor horrific marker here in terms of outcomes and long term health with respect to these with respect to metabolic syndrome and just related related inflammation problems, uh, anything else that you're seeing in terms of that has any utility out there with respect to medications or surgery? I mean, I, I was at a, I was banging my head trying to think of some other things, and I ended up with this spectrum of you know, some surgery with respect to weight loss, and then some of the products aimed at type two diabetics, and then statins, and it felt to me like that was pretty much the the universe. Yeah, we're, we're limited, right? It's yeah, diet, it's exercise, sleep some medications, yeah. maybe surgery. It's a lifestyle issue. And yeah. you can't reverse 40 years 
of not paying attention to your lifestyle in in you know three, a few three months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and you can't reverse. I thought you were going to say you can't reverse forty years of of an obesogenic environment. I mean, this is the thing that I, I, has been the most eye opening for me with respect to what, looking around and seeing people who appear to have some of the markers of, of metabolic syndrome is that. I, I, I feel I feel badly because I think it's really difficult to live in this environment where you're surrounded by this caloric overload on a daily basis and not at least at the margin because fall into some of these traps, whether it's some caramel macchiato at the coffee shop of your choice every morning or something. But it's all of these things at the margin that are so cheap and easily available that that people it's really easy to fall into these into these patterns of behavior that lead insidiously through this area under the curve that we've discussed to syndromes like this yeah it it really is a challenge and again i i really try hard not to fat shame not to blame it on eating too much it's more eating the wrong things. Sure. And I do clearly recognize that there is a genetic component and I don't lay fault or blame on people and you really have to try and work with them hard. So much of it's just is the environment is the environment that I mean you just we just the world we live in it's 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 very, what was it it was Yosarian I think in Catch Twenty Two he was explaining something to one of the other pilots that he as part of it was like they're trying to kill me <laughs> they're always trying to kill me he was trying to explain why he wanted out of the army well this is this is the same thing they are trying they're trying to kill you so just be really careful about what goes into your mouth and you consume because they're they're out there just like Yosarian's enemies and they're trying to get you so anyways that's that's metabolic syndrome. So I, I, I think we've covered most of what we wanted to. So thanks, Howard. I think we did. Thank you, Paul. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.